Corredium resources taken out by Newcrest. Huge story in the Canadian mining world. I mean, Predium, Predium, Predium. I mean, the darling 10 years ago when it came in on the scene at $6 a share and dropped to 3 and went up to 12 And then, you know, then at that point I had to sell around 2012 and I stopped paying too close of attention to the stock price, but maybe we can find it now. So Predium is taken out by Newcrest for $2.8 billion. I wonder what Mark Bristow thinks of that. Because Mark Bristow, as we know from recent episodes, has his eye on Canada. And this is arguably one of the most attractive projects, although it was quite controversial at a certain point, Back in like 2014, I mean, we wrote editorials or John Cumming wrote editorials on Predium and that whole narrative at the Northern Miner. We followed it very closely. And so let me just put in the ticker here, PVG. So it's at $12.15. That's on the U.S. markets, on the Canadian markets on in Toronto, Toronto Stock Exchange, $15.10. So... For shareholders, this has to be a disappointment if you've been holding on since 2010. I mean, you don't hold on for 10 years for, uh, you know, 50%, uh, especially to a gold stock. Maybe you hold on to Exxon for 10 years, you know, with its dividend, but you do not hold on to junior gold stocks for a 50% takeout. I mean, it's better than it going down 90%. Nevertheless, interesting. I guess with gold being somewhat depressed, I think there's just huge opportunity here, and Newcrest is seizing the moment, and I'm just waiting for Barrick's move. I was speculating last time that it could be Agnico that he has his eye on. You know, Agnico is, I don't know if I'd call it a conservative company, but maybe in, from a value perspective, maybe it's very attractive. I mean, they always have this really great assets. They just picked up Kirkland Lake, but I just think it would be a hard company to acquire. I mean, you saw Barrick with Newmont and how much trouble that was. He left with a great JV in Nevada, Nevada Gold Mines, the name of the Barrick Newmont joint venture. So it'll be interesting to see. I'm waiting for Mark Bristow, Barrick's CEO. I'm waiting for his move. Newcrest just made a move. And, you know, like gold is perking up. It's back above $1,800. It's at $1,825 per ounce. Interestingly, uh, just sort of moving on to other numbers here. The 10-year bond has dropped to 1.465. So we are down again, 0 0.07. And I was looking at our commodity prices, our industrial metals, and they are all just kind of buoyant is how I'd describe it. They're not crashing up to new highs for cobalt, but they are buoyant. They're not exactly falling back to two months ago levels which were already elevated so that is interesting silver showing a little spring in its step and so frankly a perfect time for acquisition again predium it's hard to value it right 2.8 billion dollars you know you'd have to open up everything but from what i understand it's a pretty high grade significant gold mine and you think about, maybe it says how many ounces here, and we're going to read this story, of course. How many ounces a year does Predium make? 311,000 ounces per annum. 
at all-in sustaining costs of $743 per ounce of gold over a projected 13-year mine life. So the problem with Pretium for someone like Mark Bristow is, does it move the needle enough? He's trying to get to, he's at around 4.8 to 5 million ounces of gold per year. So it does something. It does move the needle, but it doesn't move it that much. So that's, again, why I look at something like Ignico, which was before the Kirkland Lake acquisition, 2.1 million ounces. And after, I don't recall, I'm not going to put a number here. But to me, that's something, again, if Barrick has the audacity to chase after Newmont and try and take that over, surely they have the audacity to chase after Ignico. Now, again, total speculation and ready to be wrong, but I'm just curious. I mean, why is Mark Bristow telegraphing his interest in Canada? Is it just to say, hey, we love Canada, or is there a method to the madness? And to me, Mark Bristow, there is always a method to the madness there. So I am just kind of watching him like a hawk right now, as we do at the Northern Miner Podcast. And also coming up this episode, we have Tim Gitzel, of course, from Cameco. And I'm another hugely interesting story, another fascinating Canadian mining CEO. You got Mark Bristow, you have Tim Gitzel. You know, they've been around for a while with pretty storied careers. Uh, so a lot of talent actually in this country. And as you see on our CEO spotlights, we have another one coming up with Robert Enid from StarCore International Mines. And again, a lot of very thoughtful CEOs in this country. So that's something to be happy about. Anyway, we're checking in with Cameco. Fascinating as always. And just to get an update of what's going on in the very exciting uranium market, I saw Cameco. I'm not sure exactly what it's at right now, but I saw. I think I saw it at $36. Let me just do a quick search here on the Canadian. $34.97 is what Cameco is at on the Toronto Stock Exchange. So if we look at the chart there, if we look at the chart and we go back to, let's say, a year ago. Yeah, last November, it was at $12. So you basically have a 3X on Cameco. That's what you hope for when you buy these stocks. Like you don't buy these juniors like Pretium. I mean, I guess Pretium's not exactly a junior anymore, or mid-tier, let's call it. Uh, but you don't buy these mining stocks for the most part to, you know, make 20%. At least like not in my universe, not not if you're under the age of 40. Maybe if you're over the age of 40, you buy them for the 7% returns. But, you know, and it's hilarious. I mean, there's actually quite a few memes going around on crypto Twitter there, and they're just comparing the interest rates from the TradFi, traditional finance, and the crypto ecosystem. And just to hold a US dollar stablecoin, I mean, you can get upwards of 12% with not very difficultly and with very low risk. I mean, and then you see this, you know, half a percent from, you know, your local bank if you're lucky. And here in Europe, if you have more than, I think it's $15,000 or was it 25, whatever the number was, it almost doesn't even matter. If you have more than something not too high, like let's say $25,000, you have to pay the bank to store your money. My girlfriend was showing me. You have to pay the bank. And you could even go to the ECB website and they try and say, well, we're just trying to keep price stability. I'm telling you, TradFi is losing anybody under 40 and everybody else who has nothing because they're giving them nothing. Newsflash to all you out there 
who don't realize this in the traditional banking sector. That is happening. And if you're wondering why deposits are low for everybody under 40 at your bank, look no further. Look no further. Okay, so moving on. Don't forget next week we have the Global Mining Symposium. I will be doing a session with Anthony Malowski of Nickel 28. And we also have a world-class rare earths panel with Clint Cox, widely regarded as a leading, if not the leading expert. I imagine there's a couple of people that might say otherwise, but he is widely regarded as the leading expert. And we also have the CEO, Mark Chalmers of Energy Fuels, and the CEO of Commerce, Chris Grove. So sign up today. It's at events.northernminer.com. To find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts. And wherever podcasts are available, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And with that, let's turn to StarCore International Minds and Robert Enid for our next CEO Spotlight interview. So joining me today is Robert Eady, CEO, President, and Director of StarCorp for our CEO Spotlight. And they have the San Martin Project in Mexico and the El Creston Project in Mexico. And we are going to discuss that today. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on the program. It's a pleasure to come on and talk about our in exciting times, what we're doing. It's a pleasure. So yes, tell us what you are up to. Uh, you have two main projects, and they're both in Mexico. Why don't you tell us about them? All right. I'll start with San Martin as it's our producing gold mine, and it's been producing uh, under our management for 13 years. Uh, we purchased it from Gold Corp as a small mine with the big potential, and that's what we've been working on. The company's gone through uh, a number of positive events and the number of black swan events from the world and managed to maintain and keep the company together without having to dilute it very much and focus in on the geology. And what we're focused in on is the potential of this project. We currently produce a thousand ounces per month at a profit. And we want to bring that back up to where we're at in 2012, which was about 2000 ounces per month. And that would be a, a longer term goal, say a couple of years. Uh, but the way we're going, that uh, seems very attainable for us. And it's a big property. It's uh, 12,995 hectares, which translates to about 10 by 13 kilometers. And so we own that 100% with no NSR, no royalties. And so that provides us with a tremendous upside on the project. It's nice to hear that about the NSR, because I think that is becoming a bigger and bigger deal these days. And if you have no NSR... That is a great thing. So tell me, this is a gold and silver project. Did you say how many ounces a year? A month is 1,000 ounces a month, so 12,000. Okay, so 12,000 ounces a year. Is that gold equivalent ounces or what's it the... Is, it is, but most of the revenue comes from the gold. Okay, so it is gold equivalent ounces. Got it. Okay, excellent. And you're in Mexico. How is working... I mean, sometimes people have issues or questions about the security. And how do you feel about where you're located? Uh, we're in a very good location. It's in the center of the country, about three hours north of Mexico City, near a town called Queretaro. And Queretaro, um, 10 years ago, started this 
big growth uh, movement and people moving here, industries moving here. There's an aeronautical center here, which um, has a college, a university, and they train people for repair and maintenance on airplanes. And uh, some of the big names that are here um, are industry recognized. And so that really gives us a great uh, access to labor force. And the security is uh, very good in the area. Uh, so we don't have, you know, issues that you would in uh, remote locations. The San Martin mine is located about four kilometers off the main highway. And the people come back and forth to work every day, every shift. They walk to a small town and that small town is serviced by everybody that normally would be in a small town that has road access. So we're not up in the mountains far away and only reachable by plane. So that helps a lot. Before we move on to your other project, El Criston, what is the roadmap at San Martin? So you're producing a mine. Like, What is the outlook here? What are you trying to do? Are you trying to expand it? Do you want to maybe sell it? What's the roadmap? The roadmap is to develop uh, the geology and understand and attempt to identify the source of the gold. It's called an epithermial deposit, and they can be very large. To give you an example, there's Cananea, which is in the north of the country. And Cananea started as a small gold mine, identical to what we are, turned into one of the biggest copper mines in the country, and has been producing for 100 years. That's what we call as our blue sky potential. And if we go to the other end of the scale, and our minimum is about 45 years of mine life. And so we're really looking to develop the understanding and the geology and, and build the value out for the shareholders. Okay, very interesting. So you think this thing could grow quite a bit? I do. I believe that the potential for the company to grow substantially is there, given that the project has 100,000 meters plus drilling. It's in operation. It's profitable. We own the property 100%. There is no NSR. There are no property payments. We're well established in the community of mining. We're well accepted. We have our annual inspections. We have no problems with regulatory people. So we're in a great position for growth. Now tell us about your other project, the El Creston. And I think I'm pronouncing that right. That's a molybdenum project. So what is going on over there that's also in Mexico? El Creston is, you're correct, has been viewed as a molybdenum project, which really undersells what it is. And and that is a large deposit. And often you'll find uh, molly, as we refer to it, molybdenum, as a byproduct, a byproduct for copper uh, and occasionally with uh, gold and silver. So what we bought it as was a molybdenum mine. And what we were after there is to uh, play it as a commodity and buy it low and sell it high. And then we discovered, well, we met a geologist who'd worked on it for seven years we discovered that a lot of the holes had ended in copper and there was gold potential as well. And it, the property had largely been ignored for anything other than molly. So in the last uh, couple of years with the reassemblance of the database and the geological review, we're getting ready to start to drill the project for the gold potential. And so it uh, quickly could turn into a, a molybdenum gold copper project. And what here is the, again, another large property over 13,000 hectares. So again, 10 by 13 kilometers. And uh, you could be sitting on a very large copper deposit, a copper porphyry, and with a, a gold crest on top. So 
Well, that's what we'll test here before Christmas. And that one we look again to build value. That one primarily is owned 100%. There's a couple of small parts of the project that have small NSRs that can be bought back. And so when or if there is a big discovery, we are in a good financial position where our upside isn't limited. So we, we own it. There are no property payments. We want to develop it for shareholder value. Both projects are advanced. Uh, we're not starting out grassroots. We have the team in position at the mine, which supports the other team at El Creston. And so you keep your GNA costs down to a manageable amount by not having to develop another team over to a new project. We can feed the uh, El Creston project from the San Martin mine, mechanical, people, geology, accounting, everything feeds that one. You know, the personnel is actually a huge issue uh, increasingly in the mining industry, especially post-pandemic. So it's great that you have all those people around. That's actually a pretty big deal, as, as I'm sure you well know. So tell me about Molly. Like, it, we don't track the Molly price as far as industrial metals, but most industrial metals are kind of taking off right now. Is Molly also uh, doing quite well? Yes, it went from four fifty a pound up to over nineteen dollars a pound. Interestingly enough, the project has PEA, a preliminary economic assessment, done on the project um, at a Molly price. I believe is about fourteen and a half to fifteen dollars, which makes it economic at that point. But now we see such a bigger potential. We want to develop more of the land. And you're right, as far as the personnel goes, the personnel are getting harder and harder to come by, not just in mining, in every segment. And post-pandemic, there's a a labor crisis. And then um, inflation. You know, we've pre-bought tires, parts, pre-ordered equipment. I've been through uh, inflation, deflation, been through credit crisis, all kinds of things. And the best way that I see it and our management team sees it is to be prepared as much as possible for anything that can slow you down. Uh, so we have a good stream coming out of university, new students looking for employment and an opportunity for families that work for us to send their children to school with the understanding that the children can work or the young students can work at the mine in the summers and as they graduate at a certain level. They have a place to go and to work. So you're right. That's very important. It sounds like you have, if you're helping out the community, I guess that helps you in your social license, as they call it. So if people want to find you on the stock exchange, what is your ticker and on which exchanges? We're on the senior TSX, the senior board, and under the ticker SAM, S-A-M. And if they want to find you online, they can find you at starcore.com. Robert Ed, CEO and President of StarCore, thank you for joining us for the CEO Spotlight. Thank you very much and uh, have a great day and uh, encourage people to go to the website and, and ask questions and uh, learn what we're doing because it's for us, it's very exciting. And it's not an overnight success. We've been at it for 13 years, building, you know, every week, every month, every year, putting another building block on the pile to make the company in the position it's in, which is no debt and a bright future. And turning to the website, we have our main story here, Newcrest to acquire premium resources in $2.8 billion deal. And this is by mining.com editor. Australia's Newcrest Mining has entered into an agreement to acquire 
all outstanding common shares of Predium Resources. It does not already own in a deal that values the Canadian miner at $2.8 billion. Predium, and the spelling is always weird. Sometimes it's spelled with a V instead of a U. Yeah, so anyways, Predium's board of directors has unanimously recommended shareholders vote in favor of the transaction and have entered into voting support agreements. With respect to all the Predium shares that they control, Predium is the owner of the Bruce Jack operation in the highly prospective Golden Triangle region of British Columbia. Last month, Predium made a new high-grade gold exploration discovery at the Golden Marmot Zone on the Bruce Jack property, located roughly three and a half kilometers north of its Valley of the Kings deposit. We have a quote from Newcrest CEO Sandeep Biswas. Quote, we are delighted to be expanding our presence in this highly prospective region in British Columbia. Bruce Jack is a tier one mine in a tier one jurisdiction and will deliver immediate production, free cash flow and earnings diversification to Newcrest and will fit seamlessly into our long life, low cost portfolio. Now, I think Mark Bristow's definition of tier one is not the one that Sandeep is using. I think Sandeep is... Basically just saying it's a great mine, so therefore it's a tier one mine. See last episode for that. Continuing with Sandeep Biswas, quote, The combination of Newcrest and Predium will create the leading gold miner in British Columbia's Golden Triangle, operating both the Bruce Jack and Red Chris mines. So there you have it. People worry about China buying up all the world's natural resources, but Australia is sure interested in Canada these days. We had the Wailu BHP Noront. Fight And then right now it seems to be a truce where they're joining forces, Wailu and BHP, to buy out Noront. So that is the latest on that. Another Australian attempt to buy some Canadian mining property. What's interesting, I thought, you know, like, is the Australian dollar strong against the Canadian dollar? And I just looked, but from what I gathered was it doesn't look strong. It's actually kind of low. I assume because the Canadian dollar is, you know, the oil and everything is it's strengthening the Canadian dollar over the Australian one. Anyway, moving on, the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame has announced its 2022 inductees. This is by Northern Miners staff. The Canadian Mining Hall of Fame will welcome five new members at a gala dinner and induction ceremony on August 18th, 2022. At the Palais Royale Ballroom in Toronto, a limited number of tickets will go on sale for the event next year. The Northern Miner is a co-founding member organization of the Canadian Mining Hall of Fame, along with the Canadian Institute of Mining, Metallurgy and Petroleum, the Mining Association of Canada, and the Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada. And more details can be found at miningholloffame.ca. And so the five inductees are Dale Corman, born in 1937, Maureen C. Jensen, born in 1956, Philip John McKee, born in 1941, and Robert Quartermain. Well, isn't that, he's having quite a year. I'm not sure if he's still at Predium, but he definitely was there at the start. I'm not sure if he continued there. And finally, we have Peter Risby, born in 1931 and passed in 2011. And so it continues. I'll let you go to northernminer.com to read the full story on each of these individuals. And it is always a big event in the mining world, the Mining Hall of Fame. I have gone to one when I was living in Toronto, and it's a heck of a meal, and it's actually a lot of fun. So do check that out. Continuing on. BHP sheds more Australian coal mines in $1.35 billion deal. 
This is by Cecilia Jamazmi, and it says here that BHP has inked a deal to divest up to $1.35 billion in metallurgical coal assets in Australia as part of the world's largest miners' ongoing retreat from fossil fuels. The company is selling its 80% stake in BHP Mitsui Coal, or BMC, which operates the South Walker Creek and Poitrell Coking Coal Mines in Queensland to junior Stanmore Resources. The remaining stake in the joint venture is owned by Japan's Mitsui. You know, it's pretty interesting the timing of the sale because coal is all of a sudden quite in demand with all these power shortages that are going on. So I hear uh, the deal includes $1.1 billion cash on completion, $100 million in cash six months later, and a possible $150 million payout in the 2024 calendar year linked to prices. The agreement excluding the potential price link payment represents an enterprise value to EBITDA multiple of 6.9 times. And we have a quote from the head of BHP's Minerals Australia business, Edgar Basto, quote, As the world decarbonizes, BHP is sharpening its focus on producing higher quality metallurgical coal sought after by global steelmakers to help increase efficiency and lower emissions, end quote. BHP put its stake in BMC up for grabs last year when it also announced plans to exit thermal coal. Since then, it has also sold its stake in the Cerrillon coal mine in Colombia to Glencore and announced plans to merge its oil and gas assets with Australia's Woodside Petroleum, which completed in August. The global miners' decision to exit coal, quote, was not any push towards becoming fossil fuel free, end quote, CEO Mike Henry said at the group's annual meeting in London last month. Quote, it was simply a cold eyes assessment of how these commodities fit with the BHP portfolio. There you have it. The exit from fossil fuels continues at BHP. Sherit International is expanding its Cuban nickel mine. I believe this is called the Moa Nickel Cobalt Mine in Cuba. And Moa is a joint venture of Sherit and General Nickel Corporation of Cuba. And they both own half. I think Sherit's been there for decades. It's the sort of company that, you know, my late grandma would know and almost speak of fondly. I think Sherrod has been around for a while, and I think they've been in Cuba for a while. You know, you almost wonder, Canada was always seen as a bit friendlier to Cuba than the U.S., and I always had that relationship. Remember, have you seen the, and there's that conspiracy theory. Have you seen the conspiracy theory on Facebook? I remember that about three, four, five years ago, maybe. And where it was talking about how Justin Trudeau looks exactly like Fidel Castro <laughs> and, the, and the rationale behind that. I'm not going to go into it here, but it's actually it's actually one to actually look up because it's actually pretty hilarious and it does raise questions. Who knows? I, I think we just have to take the official story as as it's been given to us. But, but if you're looking for a little entertainment, you may want to Google that. The plan calls for a multi-phased approach. So they're going to expand. I mean, nickel's hot. So this makes perfect sense. And I guess Sherrod also has 100% owned refinery in Fort Saskatchewan, Alberta. So that is interesting. All to say that nickel mine probably just gets more and more valuable. Continuing on, the diamond market is the strongest it's been in 10 years, according to Paul Zimniski and Alicia Hyatt from the Canadian Mining Journal, and she's also editor of Diamonds in Canada. She interviews Paul, and Paul is one of the big analysts in the diamond industry, so super interesting conversation here. I'm just going to read a couple of clips here. Alicia Hyatt, the last year and a half has been a real roller coaster for the diamond sector. Can you catch us up quickly 
on the effect that the pandemic has had on the diamond sector and where we are right now with the market. Paul Zimniski, just to briefly summarize, the middle to the end of the last decade, I would say, was relatively underwhelming for the diamond industry. I think a lot of that had to do with the market being oversupplied. However, in late 2019, going into early 2020, the market really began to show signs of recovering. Then the pandemic hit. But the pandemic has actually accelerated the recovery that started in late 2019. According to my rough diamond price index, prices are up some 20% this year. Based on everything I'm seeing going on in the industry, I would say the diamond market is the strongest it's been in 10 years. And it's being driven by real consumer demand, which is what you want to see. And just another little tidbit scrolling down. So read the whole thing at northernminer.com. But here's another tidbit from Paul. Quote, in Russia, they actually had to borrow stocks from the government reserve. So that's on the supply side. On the demand side, consumers bought diamonds because they weren't spending money on travel and doing more experiential luxury spending. So in Russia, they actually had to borrow stocks from the government reserve because they're running out of supply. Isn't that interesting? And there's more on ESG and, uh, you know, traceability initiatives to have ESG-friendly diamonds. So read the whole thing at northernminer.com. Diamond market strongest in 10 years, according to Paul Zimniski. And so those are your news stories. Now let's take a look at metal prices. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to first take a look at the 10-year bond, which again is trading at 1.465, so down 0.07%. So the yield is falling. And if we turn to our precious metals, and we'd like to thank our friends at mining.com slash markets for providing us with these prices each and every week. On November 9th, gold is trading at $1,825.85 per ounce. That's $30 higher than last week. Silver is trading at $24.45 per ounce. That is 40 cents higher than last week. Platinum is trading at $1,059.65 per ounce. That is a dollar lower. And palladium is trading at $2,098.20 per ounce. And that is $46 higher than last week. And turning to our industrial metals, copper is trading at $4.42 per pound. That is 10 cents lower than last week. Aluminum is also trading lower at $1.13 per pound. And that is 9 cents lower than last week. Lead is trading at $1.09 per pound. That is 2 cents lower. Nickel is trading at $8.74 per pound. That is 10 cents lower than last week. Tin is trading at $17.42 per pound. That is 16 cents lower than last week. And cobalt is trading at $26.86 per pound. That is $1.34 higher than last week, and zinc is trading at $1.46 per pound. That is 11 cents lower than last week. So taking a look here, gold and silver, a little bit of a wind in their sails, and uh, platinum just flat, palladium also slightly higher. I mean, what I see in the industrial metals is a basically a consolidation. I mean, we're seeing a slight pullback from higher and higher prices. So it's not moving to our previous levels. I mean, copper, if it's new mid-range is at $4.42. The takeaway is industrial commodity prices 
remain high. They've gone beyond elevated to high. Again, nickel, okay, no, we had $9.31 two weeks ago. We are still at $8.74. You know, like lead is a two pennies off its recent high. Aluminum is maybe, you know, slightly, maybe 10% off its recent high. And cobalt is the outlier where it is the highest price we have seen since we began recording these prices two years ago. So that's also very interesting. And those are your metal prices. And coming up, we have Tim Gitzel, CEO of Cameco, and he presents the company's Q3 conference call. It's pretty interesting. I mean, basically, he's saying it's the setup couldn't be better. It's not just the best in 10 years. It's probably the best ever. And again, this narrative that has popped up on natural gas and coal and the power shortage that's kind of being felt globally with higher prices for energy. And so you're going to get a very direct, immediate view of what's going on in the uranium sector from one of the very few blue chips in the industry with arguably the best assets. Maybe that's debatable, but some of the best assets in the industry. So I hope you enjoy it and I will see you on the other side. today. We appreciate you taking the time to join us. I hope you and your families are, are doing well. I want to start today's call with the observation that we are living in interesting and exciting times in the nuclear business. That's pretty obvious. I also observe that Cameco is uniquely positioned, thanks to our strategy, to capitalize on the increasingly undeniable conclusion the nuclear power must be an essential part of the clean energy transition. Always motivated by the fundamentals, our strategy of operational flexibility, market alignment, and financial discipline has had a significant impact on the positive market dynamics that have attracted so much investor interest of late. I can tell you our commitment is unwavering and our resolve remains strong. We will continue to execute on our strategy and capture the value of the clean energy transition. So first, let's look at those fundamentals which motivate our strategy. I would say that the fundamentals of our business are as positive as we've seen them in over a decade and maybe ever. I say ever because there appears to be a durability that I don't think we've seen before. One of the big drivers for growth and demand for nuclear power today is its link to electrification and decarbonization and the commitments being made by countries and companies to net zero carbon targets. In the past, we have always been reliant on governments and public policy to take the lead. While that aspect remains important, there are now more than 1,800 companies who have made net zero commitments and will therefore play a critical role in helping to shape what energy policy will look like. These clean air and climate change commitments, in particular by companies, are creating accountability. Companies will need an energy source that can provide safe, clean, reliable and affordable electricity 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of the year. 
This accountability is what we expect will create that durability of demand for nuclear power. In addition, the important role for nuclear in the clean energy transition is being amplified by concerns about energy security as a result of the current energy crisis in many parts of the world and spiking energy costs. In the past, these types of energy crises have triggered the build-out of some of the largest nuclear fleets in the world, in places like the United States, France, and Japan. In a world where 85% of our electricity still comes from fossil fuel sources, and with COP26 just around the corner, it is time for climate realists to step forward and acknowledge that there is no clear pathway to sustainably achieve both electrification and decarbonization while maintaining a secure, affordable and stable electricity grid without having nuclear in the toolbox. Just recently, French President Emmanuel Macron pledged he would invest 1 billion euros in small modular reactors crediting nuclear power for insulating France from the current impact of rocketing energy costs and shortages of natural gas. In fact, France's grid operator says that the most cost-effective way for the country to meet its carbon-neutral goals by 2050 is to build 14 new large-scale nuclear reactors in addition to building SMRs and extending the lives of the existing fleet. Across the channel in the UK, we saw the government include about $2 billion in its autumn budget to help advance a large-scale nuclear project and another $400 million for small modular reactor development. The 2021 Nuclear Fuel Report from the World Nuclear Association showed a 2.6% growth rate in nuclear fuel demand, up from 2% in its previous report, and that just represents traditional demand from large-scale commercial nuclear applications and doesn't take into account any new build in the form of small, modular, and advanced reactors. It's not just long-term growth in the form of new builds either. It's also medium-term growth in the form of life extensions, for example, in France and in Canada. And it's near-term growth as early reactor retirements are being prevented, as was the case with Exelon's Byron, and Dresden plants in Illinois. We're also seeing momentum building for the non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power here in Canada and around the world. So it's easy to conclude that demand outlook is durable and very bright. Let's look at the other side of the fundamentals, supply. When you look at current productive capacity over the next decade, it only satisfies about 70% of utilities' run rate requirements. That means to meet the remaining 30% of requirements, new production will be needed. However, while demand for nuclear and uranium is becoming more certain, uranium supply is becoming less certain as years of persistently low prices have led to planned supply curtailments of existing productive capacity, lack of investment in new productive capacity, and the end of some reserve life for some mines. In the past, secondary supplies have filled that gap. But after years of drawing on these one-time sources, the secondary supply capacity is now declining significantly into the future. These fundamental facts are being amplified by unplanned supply disruptions caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, 
the further thinning of spot uranium due to interest in physical uranium by investors that are purchasing significant volumes of uranium and sequestering it, and the risk that global supply chain challenges interrupt the flow of goods and services in the uranium market, some of which we are already seeing both here in Canada and over in Kazakhstan. To ensure the availability of reliable and sufficient productive capacity to fuel carbon-free baseload electricity, uranium prices need to increase to reflect the economics of bringing on new supply. However, without the right market signals and without line of sight to homes for those pounds under acceptable long-term contracts, investing in a development project is not what a responsible producer does particularly when there's idle tier one capacity. Looking at where the market is today and what we are seeing, it's easy to conclude that the current uranium market is more constructive than we have seen in a very long time. Over the last few months, there's been significant volatility in the uranium spot price, but if you follow the trend line, it's definitely up and to the right. If you think back to when we began taking strategic actions, the extreme curtailment of our supply, the spot uranium price was under $18 per pound. Today, the spot price sits at about $47 US per pound after hitting over $50 US per pound not long ago. A significant move up and to the right. And what's driving the spot price increase? Well, it's the thinning of the uncommitted primary supply in the spot market, the material that does not have a committed home, something we as a responsible producer have taken significant measures to deal with as part of our strategy. Indeed, I would argue the magnitude of our production cuts to well below our sales commitments and the resulting purchase activity to replace those pounds are unrivaled with respect to their impact on the availability of uranium in the spot market today. In addition to our demand, there are several financial vehicles that seem to be trying to address the same problem we see, undisciplined producers jamming their uncommitted material through the spot market. We believe with the right structure and management, the funds can be a good substitute for utility demand in the spot market. For example, the new financial entrant to our industry, the SPROT, Physical Uranium Trust has introduced an at-the-market equity program which allows it to quickly access funds to purchase uranium if its investors collectively believe the current uranium price is low. Its purchases appear to be targeting spot material, material that has already been produced, thereby not incenting suppliers to produce into the fund's demand. Additionally, it is non-redeemable, which means the material is sequestered. So far, the trust has raised over $730 million U.S. and purchased over 16 million pounds of uranium. This activity is driving more liquidity and better price discovery, which is an important and welcome development. The interest of these types of funds in holding physical uranium is further evidence that investors see the opportunity for significant value capture in our industry. But it's important to remember that the spot market is not the fundamental market in our business. It's a very thinly traded market where small volumes can have an outsized impact on price. It is not where utilities turn to satisfy their long-term run rate requirements. It is typically where they go for one-time discretionary volumes. 
It's why we are critical of those who promote a strategy to build productive capacity fully exposed to the spot market. Having been in this business for now over three decades, I can tell you that strategy simply doesn't work for those who are trying to create long-term sustainable value, and it demonstrates a basic lack of understanding of the structure of our market. Yes, if timed absolutely perfectly, the productive capacity may enjoy a brief period of high prices on small volumes, but it is the spot exposure itself that sets in motion the price off cycle and becomes value destructive. In our business, there's no substitute for a full-blown, utility-driven, long-term contracting cycle motivated by security of supply concerns to truly drive value capture in the uranium market, just as it did in the conversion market two years ago, as it did for us during the worst down cycle in the uranium business when our average realized price outperformed the market and protected our balance sheet when others failed financially and had to be recapitalized and restructured, destroying value for their owners. Finally, after more than 10 years in a trough and through the deliberate and disciplined execution of our strategy, we are now seeing the cycle form. As the spot market continues to thin, utility interest in on-market long-term contracting is emerging. Utilities are beginning to shift their attention to securing material for their uncovered requirements and not just in off-market negotiations. Requests for proposals have come to the market as well. Based on the improving fundamentals driving term demand, the long-term price for uranium jumped by 28% to an industry average of $43 US per pound since last quarter, which is becoming more reflective of production economics. Clearly, there's a lot happening, and as I said earlier, it is an interesting and an exciting time to be in the nuclear industry. So what does all this mean for Cameco? Well, it means we are optimistic. We're optimistic about the growth and demand for nuclear power, both traditional and non-traditional. We're optimistic about growth and demand for uranium and fuel services. And we're optimistic about the incumbency opportunity for Cameco in capturing long-term value across the fuel chain and supporting the transition to a net-zero carbon economy. Therefore, we will stay the course on our strategy. We will continue to do what we said we would do. So what is it that we're doing? Well, we're aligning our production decisions with the market fundamentals. We're being strategically patient in our marketing activities and we are conservatively managing our balance sheet to ensure we can self-manage risk. This strategy has positioned us well to take advantage of the fundamentals I spoke of earlier. We have operating and idle tier one assets that are licensed, permitted, long-lived, and are proven operations that have expansion capacity. We have fully permitted and proven tier two assets that don't make sense at today's prices, but when you think about them in the context of a looming supply gap, there's a potential pathway for them to add value for us in the future, but we will continue to be very disciplined in our evaluation on that front. The curtailment of our Tier 1 and Tier 2 assets have inventoried more than 80 million pounds of uranium in the ground since 2016, and that just represents our share. More than 80 million pounds of uranium are worth much more in today's market. In addition, with our spot and term purchasing, we have taken 
56 million pounds of uranium out of the market since we began curtailing production. If you think uh, about that in terms of a uranium fund, it would be the biggest and we believe the best uranium fund there is. So why is it better? Well, the pounds are well and truly sequestered until they have a home inside a reactor core. All of our Tier 1 and Tier 2 assets are backed up by what we think is the best exploration portfolio that leverages brownfield infrastructure. But we're more than just mining. We are vertically integrated across the nuclear fuel cycle with refining, conversion, and fuel fabrication. As well, we're positioning Cameco to respond to the growing need for uranium fuel to generate safe, clean, reliable, and affordable electricity by exploring opportunities to further our reach into the nuclear fuel cycle and in innovative, non-traditional commercial uses of nuclear power. In addition to our investment in global laser enrichment and our participation in the Center for Next Generation Nuclear Technologies with Bruce Power, we have entered into a number of non-binding memoranda of understanding to explore several areas of cooperation to advance the commercialization and deployment of SMRs in Canada and around the world. These opportunities align with our commitment to manage our business responsibly and sustainably and to increase our contribution to global climate change solutions. As an independent commercial supplier, we can provide our customers with supply diversity from state-owned enterprises. With substantial Canadian productive capacity, we can help de-risk their future supply from trade policy exposure. Thanks to our disciplined contracting strategy, we have had a contract portfolio that has protected us well during the worst down cycle in our business. We also locked in significant value for our fuel services business in the recent price transition in conversion and as the uranium market improves, our focus is shifting to securing homes for our in-ground inventory. Always guided by the fundamentals, we won't chase the market down to win business and we won't produce to dump uncommitted supply into a thinly traded spot market as we've seen some of our competitors do. The primary driver for our contracting activity is always value. We have been through every market transition in our industry. And while having great assets is a necessary condition for creating long-term value, we know that it is not sufficient. Our experience has taught us that a responsible producer creates real value by building a long-term contract portfolio, portfolio that supports the operation of productive assets and generates significant cash flow through the entire commodity cycle by having leverage to greater returns as prices increase and that provides downside protection for periods of lower prices. Therefore, where appropriate, we layer in volumes over time in accordance with market conditions. As the market improves, we expect to continue to layer in volumes, capturing greater upside using market-related pricing mechanisms. However, we recognize there is a cyclicality to our business that is inevitable. That is why, as a responsible producer, we will also look to lock in value at higher prices to carry those higher prices through the next cycle, always with a view to our preference for a 60-40 split of market-related and fixed prices in our contract portfolio. On the financial side, we've been very deliberate in shoring up our balance sheet. 
At the end of the second quarter, we were again in a negative net debt position with $1.4 billion in cash, $1 billion in long-term debt, and a $1 billion undrawn credit facility. As such, we have the financial capacity to self-manage risk and maintain our strategic resolve. Let me talk about risk mitigation for a minute. When we embarked on our strategy and began the extreme curtailment of our supply, we acknowledged that there would be costs associated with our strategic decisions. To be certain, these are the costs you see reflected in our financial results. The cost of not operating mines is significant. And yes, in a rising price environment, there is a significant cost that comes with purchasing increasingly expensive pounds. The good news is they do not represent the run rate of our business. Just step back for a minute and consider where the market might be today had we not taken these actions. Had Cameco not acted strategically and decisively, almost 170 million pounds would still be above the ground and trying to find a home in the market. The spot market would still be significantly oversupplied. Financial and other investors would not have taken notice of uranium. So when we are asked, are we worried if the price runs away and we have to buy really expensive material to satisfy our commitments? Our response is, that is exactly the outcome we wanted to see from our strategic actions. Let me explain that. Make no mistake, we will purchase expensive material because we need it and it allows for price discovery, but they are a consequence of our very deliberate strategy and we put four layers of risk mitigation in place to deal with them. First, we carry an inventory. That's our first line of defense. Second, when uranium prices started with a two or a three, we secured more than 12 million pounds of material under long-term fixed price purchase arrangements. The deliveries under these arrangements are heavily weighted to the years 2025 through 2028. However, in the event we are unable to find enough material to meet our committed sales while MacArthur River is shut down, or if it becomes very expensive, we can consider advancing the timing of delivery under these arrangements. Today's purchase price for these pounds is considerably less than our current market prices, and remember, they have a home in our contract portfolio. Third, we also have the ability to borrow material that is stored at our licensed facilities. Fourth, and finally, if the price is moving that quickly, we are likely in a full-blown security of supply contracting cycle, and a rising price is leading to better price realization under our existing contract portfolio. It's also creating the opportunities to layer in new long-term commitments with appropriate pricing mechanisms. These will underpin the long-term operation of our productive capacity, satisfying the conditions for a restart at the MacArthur River Key Lake operation. Yes, it'll take us some time to get it going as we outlined in our technical report, but those will be among the first assets that will be able to respond. Also remember, deliveries under new contracts typically don't start for another couple of years once signed. We're not there yet, but when the day comes to restart MacArthur River Key Lake, it will be undeniably positive news for Cameco, and we believe the market. It will be the signal that, with all of our market experience, we know it is time to prepare our Tier 1 assets because a market transition has taken hold. It will mean we see a market that is calling for more supply, and we have a line of sight to return to our Tier 1 cost structure, delivering our uranium under long-term contracts that will create value and will not overhang the market. 
Our decisions are deliberate. We are a responsible, commercially motivated supplier with a diversified portfolio of assets, including a tier one production portfolio that is among the best in the world. We are committed to operating sustainably by protecting, engaging and supporting the development of our people and their communities and to protecting the environment, something we've been doing for over 30 years. We've determined that our strategy of operational flexibility, market alignment and financial discipline will allow us to achieve our vision of energizing a clean air world, thereby delivering long-term value in a market where demand for safe, secure, reliable and affordable clean nuclear energy is growing. Before we start the Q&A, I just want to make a few comments on our decision to file a Notice of Appeal with the Tax Court of Canada. We are extremely frustrated that we have to take this step after 13 years of litigation and multiple court decisions in our favour. However, we've seen little progress in our engagement with the CRA to apply the unequivocal rulings to the reassessments for the 2007 through 2013 tax years and to return to us the $777 million in cash and letters of credit it is holding as security. It is very disturbing to us that an agency of our government refuses to respect the clear and decisive findings of the courts. We can't predict how long the process might take, but we owe it to our employees, shareholders, and the many other stakeholders who count on our company to hold CRA to account. We will pursue all feasible avenues available to us to get our money back and to bring this matter to a conclusion. It has gone on way too long. So thanks for joining our call today. And operator, with that, we would be happy to answer any questions. I think my favorite part, though, was him holding the CRA to account. Isn't that kind of kind of wild? I mean, what are they waiting for? It his indignation and his being disturbed. I mean, CRA, what's going on with Cameco? Where is the resolution? There are shareholders involved here. And so, thanks again for joining the podcast. If you want to leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory can do so and we would appreciate it share it with your friends and until next week take care